0: Pray. Father, we acknowledge that uh, you have the words of eternal life, and that as your Son, our Savior, prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. And that is our prayer. Lord, as you gave instruction by inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a preacher, that is to preach the word to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching with the warning that there is a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and give themselves to myths. Lord, protect us from such heresy. Guard our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would love the whole counsel of your word. May we receive it with joy. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd empower me to proclaim it, that I'll be moved out of the way, that the truth of Christ would be proclaimed. to see the reality of what it is for those in Christ who have died in him, who have been buried in him, raised in him to new life, and dwelt by your spirit. Help us to understand. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. To all who are visiting with us this morning, we want to welcome you. I see some new faces, we're delighted to have you with us. And I speak on behalf of everybody here, by the way, everyone who calls this home. Uh, We are currently studying through the book of Romans. So if you would open to Romans chapter 7, we begin a new chapter, but sometimes, you know, the unfortunate things about chapter breaks is that uh, they sometimes cause us to think that there's a change in theme Uh, But actually uh, Romans 7 is carrying on the same theme that we have been studying for a few weeks now. I'll explain that as we get into it. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, Romans 7, the title of the message is Freedom from the Letter to the Spirit of the Law. So if you would please stand and I'll read God's word. I want to begin back in verse 22, chapter 6. But now that you have been freed, set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code or written letter. You may be seated. Freedom from the letter unto the spirit of the law. Now, in Romans 6, Paul makes clear that God's superabounding grace, okay, that is that those that are saved cannot outsin God's grace. Did you know that, Christian? You cannot outsin God's grace. Paul goes on and he talks about the superabounding grace of God in Christ. But such superabounding grace leads to holiness, not lawlessness. In Romans 6 and verse 1, Paul raises the question with regard to superabounding grace. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer. By no means. God forbid. Down in verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Answer, by no means. Now this chapter division, as I said, is not meant to divide the subject matter for which we have been studying. Chapter and verse breaks came long after The scriptures were penned, and they do help us in knowing where things are, but uh, the chapter break doesn't break the subject matter for which Paul has been expounding upon, because Paul has another point to make about our union with Christ, before he introduces a new thought. So although we move into a new chapter, again, the subject remains the same. He's just providing a new illustration for us this morning. In chapter 6, Paul is primarily refuting what's known as antinomianism, to be against God's law. It's a response to those who think that his teaching on being justified by faith according to God's grace alone means that you can just now live any way you want. He's contesting a view that says, I'm a believer now and the law has nothing to do with me. I shall do as I please. Now that I'm a believer, it doesn't matter how I live. Or there's those in our day who play the Christian liberty card as an excuse to be, as I said last week, the kind of party boy. Their motive is to be the party boy so they throw out Christian liberty as their trump card. Paul says, let that not be. You don't understand grace. So he argues here from the angle of the believer's union with Christ, showing us that licentious behavior by Christians is contradictory to their new identity in Christ and their profession of faith in the Savior. It's a contradiction. Now, when he gets to verse 7, which we will not get to today, but when he gets to verse 7, he's going to cover another doctrinal perversion. And that is that some people teach that because of God's grace, that means the believer will never, ever struggle with sin again, leading to the false ideal of what's known as perfectionism. Okay? That's false doctrine as well. We're going to see clearly next time that the Christian continues to struggle with sin. Keyword: struggle. But Paul, he, he has labored to highlight the spiritual reality that we have been crucified with Christ. We have a union with him that's everlasting. And that because of our spiritual union with Christ, we participated in his death and therefore have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. We can all say amen right now. Amen. Glory. Before Christ, the only thing that we were free from, you know what it was? Righteousness, thank you. Verse 20, chapter 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's it. Meaning what? Righteousness was not my concern before I was saved. No concern at all. People sin because they're sinners. And as such, they think they're sinning to their own profit sin or sin and hope of some kind of perceived gain robbers rob for gain liars lie for gain the covetous covet for some sake uh, in their mind of benefiting themselves to obtain for themselves esteem or fame or power or position all a demonstration of self gain and the only freedom we had before christ was freedom from righteousness Yet all our pre-salvation gain gained us nothing but one, one thing. And what is it we looked at last time, beloved? You know what it gains? What does it earn you? Death. Death. What's the earning power and ultimate payoff for sin? Its wage is death. The more sin, the more earning power. And all we earn is death and judgment. Now, that truth, beloved, in our day is opposed to every other worldview out there. Eastern religions say that the escape from this is what? Self-denial. You just try hard to deny yourself these certain pleasures. That leads to legalism. Trying to uphold the law, God's law, which will kill you in the end. Because no one can uphold it. You break one law. Jesus said you've broken them all. Well, I've never committed adultery. You have in your mind. Jesus said if you've ever had lustful thought in your mind, you've committed adultery. He sees the heart. He sees the motives. Guilty. Others believe that the escape comes through certain practices, certain liturgies, uh, meticulous acts of devotion. Here, Paul says it all leads to one place. It's called death. And he goes on to explain that there's only one way out of it. Verses 22 and 23 of Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of who, beloved? Remember that word doulos? It means slaves of God. Oftentimes when you read the word servant in the New Testament, it's typically translating the word doulos which simply means slave we are now slaves of god no longer slaves of sin because we died in christ we've been raised in christ we're new creatures in christ we have the holy spirit within us love of christ verse 5 chapter 5 romans it's been shed abroad in our hearts by the holy spirit given to us set free no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus freed we're recipients of grace and as recipients of grace, they receive the fruit of this freedom, which is sanctification and, in the end, eternal life. You're granted eternal life the moment you're saved, never to lose it. You cannot lose your salvation. Anyone who's truly saved are given what's known as, granted what's known as eternal. How long is eternal life? Forever. So, our new aim as redeemed children of God, according to his grace, is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Its end, its count outcome, life everlasting. Verse 23 the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice Paul's double contrast sin leads to death, grace leads to life. Sin is something that is earned, salvation is a gift that is freely given. Salvation is free. Sin is earned. With wages, you reap what you sow, death. With the free gift, you receive life everlasting in Christ. So now, Paul continues his one or the other reasoning, okay? He's going to continue this one or the other reasoning. What he's saying is, not only are you one kind of a slave or another, either a slave to sin outside of Christ or a slave to righteousness in Christ, not only are you one kind of fool or another, you're either a fool in the eyes of the world for Christ or you're a fool in the eyes of Christ for the world. He continues this thought. Very Pauline. And he illustrates here that everybody is one kind of a bride or another. Everybody belongs to one kind of husband or another. Yes, men, bear with me. After all, in Christ, we are the bride of Christ. Amen? Amen. Notice this great illustration. It's going to take some explaining, so you've got to really stay with me. I labored over this so that I could be clear, I hope. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. He's using a very simple analogy. That's what this is. It's an analogy. Marriage in the vow one makes, they make it as long as we both shall live. I'm obligated to you until death do us part. Anything else is an adulterous relationship. That's the analogy. Verse 3. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. All right? So in marriage, he says, we're bound by law in the eyes of God so long as both persons are breathing. Upon death, the living spouse is free to remarry. The law that binds in marriage is only in effect as long as both persons are living. It's a simple analogy. The challenge comes in the point of the analogy. Okay? is where you have to stay connected. And here's our first point in the sermon. Freedom from laws binding authority. By being in Christ, you are freed from the authority and the curse of the law. Okay? For the Christian, only those in Christ by faith alone are freed from the curse of the law. Notice verse 4, the word likewise. He uses the analogy, likewise my brothers, okay, Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Important to note here, Paul doesn't say your spouse has died, but who's died? You've died. Most important to note in context to his analogy, it's not the law that has died, you did. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, if you're a Christian, you're born twice and you'll only die once. If you're outside of Christ, you're born once and you'll die twice. To be born again by faith in Christ this is a supernatural, monergistic, one-way work of God. It's a gift of God. You had nothing to do with it. If you're born again, you're only going to die once, and that's this body's going to die. And you'll be released from this body and enter into his presence because of grace that was provided at Calvary's cross. If one resists the grace of God in Christ Jesus, he has only been born once physically. He'll die physically, and he'll die spiritually for eternity to be cast into outer darkness where there's wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Conscious existence forever and ever and ever of suffering apart from the grace of God. See the price of the cross? So, since it is you that has died, your marriage to the law is no longer binding. Binding. Your marriage to the law of God because of sin is no longer binding. That is, the law no longer has dominion over you the way it did before Christ. And you can say amen to that. Reminding us again, beloved, that the law is not the solution to save anybody, it only adds to the problem. Because the law is like a mirror the the mirror only shows you that you're messed up, what needs to be fixed. The law shows you the holy, perfect standard of God Almighty, and you can't keep it. It'll crush you. You need one to uphold it in your place, and there's only one who's done it. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The law is permanently binding. You've already violated it. And if you're under its authority, it will be until death do you part now in the mind of any jew you got to think about this the jewish christians in the church of rome they knew god's law and god's law was one of the central pillars to god's people and for god's people so paul has said some shocking things about the law thus far if you've been paying attention just look at chapter 3 and verse 20 by the works of the law no human being will be justified in the sight in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Chapter 4 and verse 15. The law brings wrath. But where there is no law there's no transgression. Chapter 5 verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased Grace abounded all the more. Chapter 6, verse 15, no longer under the law, the believers no longer under the law, but under grace. And then he kind of pauses after that verse, chapter 6, verse 15, and then he says basically, now let me tell you what I don't mean by that glorious statement. And then he spends the remainder of chapter six explaining what he doesn't mean and he uses that master analogy. Notice chapter six, verse 16. Do you not know if you present yourselves as anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey obey either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to what? Righteousness. Now, here in chapter seven, he picks back up on the subject. And now he says, okay, now at this point, I want to explain what I do mean. You've already heard what I don't mean. Now I want you to understand what I do mean. And and when I say that you're not under the law, but you're free from the law and indeed are under grace, then he provides this analogy. Because such statements to any Jew would have set off all kinds of warning alarms in their mind. They want an explanation. We know what God gave us at Mount Sinai. You need to explain yourself, Paul. What does it mean that we're freed from the law? If the law has been fulfilled in Christ, what's the Christian's relationship to the law now? How are we to relate to God in terms of law? How are we to relate to God in terms of grace? And he goes on to explain. Now, With regard, beloved, to how one handles the law of God, there are potential dangers. Number one is the danger of legalism. Those who depend upon obedience to the law for their right standing with God. If we just try a little harder to uphold the law, God will accept me. That will lead to legalism. If you're in Christ, you died in Christ, you were raised in Christ, he's provided you grace he's provided you mercy he's given you the spirit he's done it all we abide now in a loving reciprocal way reciprocal love he loved us first we love him in return and then the other extreme of course is antinomianism to be against the law god those who take god's grace as a license for sin you know if we're under grace let's sin all the more And that's the foolishness for which Paul has been dealing with thus far through chapter 6. Now in the process of explaining what it means to be under grace and not law, Paul certainly anticipates certain objections from his readers and he goes on to, to clarify the law's function as well as what it means to be freed from the law. He's made it emphatically clear. You cannot work your way back into a restored relationship with a holy, living, mighty God by way, of his, by way of upholding his law. You know what he goes on to say? You can't do it, which means a death must take place. Are you with me, beloved? A death must take place. And he says, let me illustrate for you. If a wife loses her husband by way of death, there's no allegiance owed to him anymore because he's dead. He's dead. She's no longer obligated to him in marriage. He's deceased. Verse four, again, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may... Don't miss this. May what? Now we can bear fruit for God. Now we can bear fruit for God. Dying to the law, beloved, is necessary for our salvation. Dying and trying to uphold the law to find favor in the sight of God, we must do in order to be saved. What that means is that we die to any and all claims that we can make ourselves righteous by way of obedience to God. You can't do it. That's impossible. That's his point. For all who've stopped trusting in themselves, for all who've stopped trusting in their own deeds and in their own works, repenting of trying to commend themselves before God, making themselves acceptable by what we do and don't do, when you die to that kind of thinking, you're now prepared to receive grace. That's why the most lost people are people who think they're good. I ask people who think they're good when you stand before God, and you will, when He asks you, Why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say to Him? What's the inevitable answer? Well, I'm a decent person, I try my best. You're under the law. And you have to uphold it perfectly if you're going to get in. And there's only one who's done it it's Christ. And unless you place your faith and trust in Christ, who upheld the law and then appeased the wrath of God because he's just at the same time, you ain't getting in. That's why the gospel is an offense. That's why Jesus Christ is a stumbling stone of offense. That's why people are offended at the gospel. Because you do nothing to play part in being saved. See why it's an offense, beloved? A sinner must seek his forgiveness and throw themselves at the mercy of God. That attacks and assaults pride. For all who believe by faith, the scripture says, were buried with him into death and thus have died to the law. Raised in Christ. Resurrection power. Meaning quite simply, your old husband, the law, is dead. So you're released from that law that bound you to him. That's freedom. Freedom. But now, after such a death, we've been joined to another. We're joined to another by way of union, a marriage, a new husband. We had to die to the law as though it were our first husband. That's his point. That's the picture. And now, having been made alive with Christ, you've been raised from the dead, united to him, you have a new husband. It's Jesus, the risen one. That's real freedom, beloved. That's true freedom. This is something God has done for us. He did nothing to play part in this. We could not do this for ourselves. So he not only planned salvation, he carried out that plan to the end. And all that you could be joined to another, freed from the bondage of the law, to him who was raised. So we're released from the penalty of the law. Joined. Verse four, to him who's been raised from the dead. You have a new living spouse, Christian. A new living husband. The church, we are the bride of Christ, a people who were once married to the law. Which is to say that we were bound by sin and the mirror of the law revealed that sin and our impotence to do anything about it. Therefore, sin is now dead to us, like a first spouse who passed away. So we're no longer obligated to them. You're no longer obligated to try to work your way in. The obligation is now to Christ, who was raised and lived forever. So Paul's illustration is brilliant. It's brilliant. If you don't see brilliance here, then you miss the point. This is amazing. The old marriage to sin was, was intimate, but it was hateful. It was like a bad marriage, man. Like a bad husband that used to beat you. That's what this was. Now that marriage is dissolved. Not by divorce, but by way of death. Imagine a miserable, a miserable marriage. Marriage where the marriage vows have become this despised burden. But the law you see in the eyes of God weld together this bond by way of vow. You're bound forever until death do you part. But then the husband dies, making void the woman's status. Now she's released. She's no longer obligated. She's free. Married to another, And once you're married to another, now new allegiance is due. Your allegiance is due to Jesus. You owe him allegiance. I owe him allegiance. For what? In response to all that he's done for me. This is not to earn anything. This is because everything's been earned already by him. We get this? Now, there's a slight difficulty here between Paul's illustration in verses 2 and 3 and the likewise reality of verse 4, if you perhaps have caught this. In Paul's illustration, the husband dies and the wife who's still alive remarries, okay? But the likewise of verse 4, the likewise reality which Paul is il- illustrating is that the believer is like the wife who actually dies, Okay? And then, as a resurrected wife, marries a resurrected husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reality of Christian regeneration. You were born twice physically, then you were born again for the Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, lest a man be born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom. Can't understand it, let alone receive it. (laughs) So the reality of the Bride of Christ... Is that she's joined to her resurrected bridegroom? It's the church. Saved by way of grace. The one who forever lives to make intercession for those that are his by way of marriage. So, Paul here is driving home the truth that the law's power and the law's claim ends at death. We died in Christ. His claim is on you now, not the law's claim, his claim. You get that? His claim is on you. So therefore our allegiance is owed to him. It's reciprocal love. We love him because he first, again, loved us. So just as everyone is one kind of slave or another, so too everyone is one kind of bride or another. One is either married to the law, which brings forth death, or is married to the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, who provides life everlasting, the one who came and died and raised up again. Now, do we still sin, Christian? You better say yes. (laughs) We'll get you next week with the false doctrine of perfectionism. Yes, we still sin, but no longer does sin have claim on us. No longer does it dominate us or rule us as it once did. We've been set free. Because we are now united to Christ in an everlasting union, it's not necessary that we sin. All attempts before were sinful. Any attempt to find favor in the sight of God was sinful, but that's what's called self-righteousness. But now, with all of our faith and trust in Christ and all that He's accomplished, it changes the tone of our heart because the heart's been changed. New life. All because of the strength and power of our new husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Being dead to sin, alive to Christ, doesn't mean we no longer sin or stumble, but it does mean that sin is no longer our Lord our master, husband. Verse four, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Now, very important, the body of Christ here, notice that in verse four, look at it. The body of Christ does not mean the church, but that God did this through the body of Jesus. That is his physical body. He was fully God, he was fully man. That he died and because he chose you before the foundation of the earth, he's transformed you, you died with him. In his body. He bore the full penalty of our sin on the cross. His body bore that penalty. He was our substitute. And in him we were made to die to the law through the body of Jesus. You see the intimacy and the power of this union, beloved? Paul's moved from talking about justification by faith to the union that it provides, a oneness that we have in Christ. The only way the law could be fulfilled was through the perfect, holy obedience of Jesus Christ. Because not one of us is capable of keeping it. This, beloved, is what's referred to as the active and passive obedience of Jesus Jesus came down and actively did everything that the law of God required, righteously fulfilling every aspect of the Father's expectation. Active obedience, leading to passive obedience. That is, he passively or submissively, as the perfect Son of God, surrendered himself to the cross in innocence. Isn't that beautiful? to the suffering wrath of the Father. Remember the garden? Father, if it's possible that this cup may pass, what was the cup that he asked to pass? The cup of God's unmitigated wrath that would be poured out upon Jesus, the sinless one, as though he committed every one of your sins, every one of our sins. An innocent substitute, that's what it required for sinners like you and me to be saved. The active and passive obedience of Christ. What's the goal? To save us and transform us, grant us everlasting life. What about the here and now? Notice the goal. This leads to our next point. Liberty in Christ, right? Freedom from laws binding authority leads to liberty. You want to talk about true liberty? It's liberty in Jesus to do this. Bear fruit for who? Who? Let's not let's not let's not miss this to bear fruit for God. That's why people throw that Christian liberty card out there. Because they want to be the Hollywood hotshot poser. It's a bunch of nonsense. Notice the vivid contrast to the shameful fruit of the first marriage. Our old husband, the shameful fruit of that relationship, Verse 5 For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for what? Death. Back in chapter 6, verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things? Death. Before Christ came to you with salvation, you were living under the law, but you couldn't obey it. It's impossible. All the law did was arouse your innate sinful passions. All the law does is stir up what's already in us. It's called rebellion, right? Why are there so many handprints and fingerprints on glass where a sign is posted that says, don't touch the glass? Because we're rebels, that's why. Take the sign down and you'll have clean glass. Don't step on the lawn. I told you about my paperboy days. See a sign like that? You trample through the grass because you're a sinner. You're a rebel. When the law is posted, the law is posted, you violate it, you become a transgressor. That's what the law does. We'll see next week that law also reveals the fact that we are sinners. Paul said, I would not known if that was covetous lest I read the law. Thou shalt not covet. Our old sinful passions, governed by our Adamic nature, were aroused and amplified by the law, chapter 5, verse 20. Until the superabounding grace of the gospel stormed into your life. No, you didn't open the door, he kicked it in. Justification by grace through faith doesn't lead to more sin so that grace may abound. Just the opposite is true. This is Paul's point. Because you were raised, you, were, you died, you were raised to new life that loves righteousness, that loves holiness, where freedom, true freedom, is expressed in obedience, not disobedience, not licentiousness, you now have the ability to keep God's word and, verse 4, bear fruit unto God. So, as a result of this new marriage, the law is no longer daunting. God's law for the believer is no longer intimidating. It's no longer scary, right? Because you're released from it. You're no longer married to the law. You're married to Jesus, the one who upheld the law. Old things have passed away. Notice verse six. But now you're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, not under the old written letter, it might be translated, but what? In the new life of the spirit. Old things have passed away, beloved. That is our flesh under the law has passed away. The new has come. Spiritual life. The spirit within you. So it's not the law that's been put to death, but the sinner that's been put to death in Christ, who is now a disciple of the master. A wife of the husband. The new husband. That old man, he's dead. a spirit-indwelt bride of the groom, slave of the master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? This guy, what a master theologian. Masterful analogy. Paul tells us here that Christ's death and your death in him brought you into a new freedom whereby you were freed from the condemnation of the law until death do you part. And the only thing that will die is this flesh that you're in. I was talking to a guy on Thursday night study. He just lost his brother in a drowning accident. I think he said a couple years ago. We were talking together because my brother just died a couple months ago. And he said, you know, I said, who found the body? He said, me, my brother, and my dad. Days after. Ledged under a rock. He goes, my dad is a strong believer, and he used it as an illustration to say, see, boys, that's not your brother. That's just a shell. Born twice, you die once. This isn't you. The Spirit of God is in you, here in this body. Christ came in a bodily form. Fully man, yet fully God. Upheld the law, laid down his life. He was crushed in order to release the crushing condemnation of the law over you. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, you're under the law. And you'll be judged according to it. Come to Christ. And you can be saved. So, the law you had, the the relationship you had to the law before, it's entirely changed, believer. Now, instead of seeking some kind of outward conformity to the letter of the law, that is external rules, conduct. You know, you ever notice in the church we don't have lists of things you should and shouldn't do as a Christian? Did you ever notice that? You ever grow up where a church is, you know, dancing is a sin or playing cards or whatever, a list of nonsense. The believer indwelt by the Spirit actually fulfills the Spirit of God's law. Romans 8, verse 4. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You have the Spirit. You're indwelt by the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. So the Christian life doesn't consist of conformity to a a list of rules and regulations. Amen? Amen but it's the very life of the risen Lord Jesus Christ wrought within us by the Holy Spirit. That's the gift. So what the written law, beloved, was was unable to accomplish, the Spirit is able to do by writing the law of God on our hearts, providing us the power and the desire to obey the King, therefore bearing fruit for God. God. Isn't it beautiful? Free, not from the righteous, righteous rules of God, not from righteousness and rule, that's not what we're freed from, but empowered to carry out his righteous rule. Freed from it. It's not the standard that saves us, Christ is. And he sets us free. Do you know the New Testament is about the quarter, quarter of the size of the old? Right? You can just do that, you can just hold the New Testament and look at it, it's, it's about a quarter of the size. And yet, did you know that there are almost twice as many commands in the New Testament as there is in the Old? Did you know that? Probably not, right? It's true. So for any Christian looking for freedom from rule, you're not going to find it in the New Testament. You're freed from the condemnation of the law. The the law is the schoolmaster that drives us to Christ, showing us our helplessness. And he's our hiding place, you see. So freedom from the law doesn't mean freedom from righteous living. Because God's character, beloved, is the source of law. It's the source of law. You know, we live in a society. I was thinking about this this week, and you're going to agree with me on this. I know you will. We live in a a culture that is so narcissistically opposed to being brought low by any sense of guilt about anything, right? That the world sees themselves as victims rather than responsible. In order to escape any sense of responsibility, they fly the flag of victim. You know, I'm, I'm a victim of my upbringing, I'm a victim of my race, or I'm a victim of my place, or I'm a victim of my height, or I'm a victim of my plight. It's true. Unfortunately, that kind of selfish attitude has been adopted by much of the church today, where people demand, they actually demand pastors, don't bring me low. Don't bring me low in your preaching. I'll go somewhere else. Go. (laughs) Don't bring me low about hearing about righteousness or bearing fruit for God. That sounds like legalism. It's about as far from legalism as you can possibly get if you understand this. Come on, somebody. (laughs) They gripe, saying, preaching on righteousness only stirs up feeling unnecessary feelings of guilt within me. Well, then run to the cross. Look up. If you're brought low, look up. You know what you see? Calvary, baby. Calvary. The one who came and paid the price. They claim, you know, preaching righteousness is preaching law. I'm free from the law. You don't know what freedom is, if that's your attitude. All it reveals is that they they hold a very shallow view as to the depth of sinfulness from which we have been delivered. And the height of the one in whom we are now married and in union with. For how long? Forever. That's grace. That's grace. To be free from the law is to be free from the penalty of the law, not from its holiness, not from its righteousness, not from its spirituality, not from its goodness, not from its morality, but from its penalty. Set free to abide in Christ. Coming into a new marriage with a new husband through the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ changes your relationship and your attitude towards the law, towards the imperatives of Scripture. See, if you've been freed from trying to make yourself acceptable to God by self-effort to the law, through surrender, by way of repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, suddenly the law is not burdensome. (laughs) It's sweet. It's a light to your path. It guides you. Walking in new life, spiritual life, Verse six is an expression of love to the husband in whom we are now joined. We've been brought out from the law, beloved, gifted the blessing of covenantal grace by way of God the Holy Spirit, and it creates a different view of the law altogether. May we always maintain a right motivation for obedience, amen? It's a motivation because of what he's done. I could never do this. That's grace. He did it for me. 1 John 2, 3. Did you listen to the words that Mark read this morning? 1 John 2, 3. So as we maintain this right motivation in living in this marital union with Christ, loving him who first loved us, we come to know him more intimately. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know Did you get that? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Not to earn salvation, but because of. We're unable to serve God from the heart by way of the newness of the spirit, bearing fruit that pleases God. Do you want to please God? I want to please him. Therefore, I'm not going to throw out some card that Christian liberty, man. The more I sin, the more he's glorified. That's ridiculous. Come on, you don't understand grace. Paul's destroying this view. By means of salvation, we can serve the Lord of the law because we're not under the law. The law is a reflection of him, beloved. Holy, pure, righteous, and right, and just. (laughs) Enabling us to see our helplessness constantly looking to what? the cross that's the table beloved the table that we're going to about about to come to this morning together is the visible expression of the gospel the crushed body the broken body the shed blood of the lamb of god we now demonstrate allegiance to him christ is our husband and we can do so by way of the power of the spirit not the letter of the law freed from the law leads to holiness not lawlessness and I close with this Romans 1 16 I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by what? faith in all that he did has done, and is doing. John Newton wrote these words, one of his hymns. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder, right, on Mount Sinai. There's no covering at Sinai. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He's washed us with his blood. He's brought us nigh to God. That's union. That's marriage. Christ crucified, raised, ascended, ruling, reigning, sending the spirit who dwells in you. And by faith we come to the table. And the table is only for those whose faith and trust is in Jesus. If you're not a believer this morning, dear friends, we're glad you're with us. But do not partake of the table if you're not a Christian. Parents, please teach your children once they're baptized and make a public profession of faith, then they can partake. We come to the table, we recognize, we realize, we remember, God's the one who's faithful. And he'll not let you go. He's forever faithful to his people. The work he begins, he will complete. So if you haven't humbly come to Christ by way of repentant faith, and this is not an inward reality, again, do not partake. To all who love the Lord, to all who've been humbled by his word, this table, again, it shows us Christ. Look to him by faith. So as a believer, you can come to the table with broken repentance and confidence at the same time.